Hey everyone, today we have a awesome guest, Mr. Will Larson, <laughs> who's formerly of many things, CTO of Calm Now, but also Stripe, Uber, and Dig. And I think my relationship with Will kind of goes back a little bit to, I think, I think you were telling the Dig story, and I, was, I got so excited that I was like, hey, you should speak to Brian McCullough of the Internet History Podcast. And that may have been like the first podcast that you ever did or, or something like that. Then I started seeing your name popping up everywhere. And probably you, you, you were writing you know, for a while before that. Then, then you put out the Elegant Puzzle, which is a rock star bestseller, <laughs> at least in, in engineering management land. And now you're working on a new book, Staff Engineering. I think the, a key insight of Staff Eng project is this idea that there are four archetypes there's a team lead, there's architects, there's solvers, and there's right hands. And most people are team leads. I think it's an interesting thing that people don't really get to see. Like, there's no guide when you get into the tech industry that says, like, here, okay, like, once you hit senior, this is what happens after senior. And I think this is the first clear art articulation of, like, these are the four sort of tracks that you could kind of pursue as an, as an IC. What gave you the impetus to, to, to like, start splitting these out into, into four different tracks? What happens after senior is an interesting, an interesting question. And so one of the ideas behind writing this book is that we in Silicon Valley and many startups have this idea of like two technical, two tracks. You have this like management track, you have this technical individual contributor track, but also when we speak, we use management and leadership as synonyms. And so there, there's something that doesn't quite fit here. If we think of management and leadership as kind of the same thing, and then we also say there's two career tracks. It, 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 it's almost as if we don't mean what we're saying. Um, and I don't think that's true. I think there's like a lot of genuine um, good intent behind these two different tracks. But, you know, we talk about intent and then impact. And I do think that we've struggled to have the impact around having a second real leadership track for folks. And it's, it's again, so how do we build a book? How do we build some resources and some, some standards around companies actually having the impact of having a real second career path for, for folks who don't want to go into people management, but still want to progress their careers and become leaders. And I think one of the, the things that I've seen a lot is that if you don't have clear role models, um, you just make it up. And that, that, that sometimes you do a really great job. And this is like the beauty of like first principles, kind of making things up from scratch. Um, and sometimes you just, just assume that like what a, a staff engineer or a distinguished engineer does is even more of a senior engineer. And one of the things that I've seen as I've talked to a lot of folks about the interview process in particular is this idea that like many interview processes for staff engineers are like really fast senior engineers. So like a senior engineer who's like really fast programmer or a senior engineer who solves the architect architecture problem really quickly, not necessarily better, but just like very, very quick. Um, I can even remember one of my favorite um, interviews I ever did early in my career was with this um, engineer coming out of Amazon and I was doing this architecture interview with him and he just kept asking so many clarifying questions that I never really got him to answer the question, but I like ran out of time to clarify the details of the question itself. And I was like, this is a really smart person. Um, but, but in retrospect, like, he actually never like, answered any of the question. He, he just like, kept asking so many clarifying <laughs> questions that I ran out of time. And I was just like a, a bad interviewer um, at, at that point. So when I think about like, what does it actually mean? Um, and can we give people a map of what this means? And a lot of companies internally um, when they hit a certain scale, have developed their own map of what this looks like. Like Facebook actually um, had these archetypes, different set of archetypes for, for its worth on these senior roles for, for at least like four or five years. I don't quite know when they've had them. But so companies have been doing this internally, but um, th there hasn't been a shared one. And each time a company hits like 100 engineers or 500 engineers, they've been kind of making it up 
or they've been cargo culting as like, hey, um, when I was at Google, or hey, when I was at Amazon, or hey, when I was at Facebook, we had this list. Um, but but you know what Facebook made up was just what Facebook made up. It, it's not necessarily the best version of it, and and same for all of these. So I think there's a, a real value of getting these these ideas in the public's eye, um, having like a broader kind of community discussion around what archetypes we actually want, and trying to push the entire industry forward uh, as opposed to trying to do this by like company by company basis. Well, I want to take it back for a second, Will. Who is someone that you consider a role model for yourself personally? So one, one of the things I've been thinking about, and one of the reasons I wanted to write this book, is as I started trying to hire a more diverse team, one of the, the problems that I started to, to understand a little bit better is that often as companies want to um, hire a more diverse pipeline, what they do is they go um, junior. They start hiring folks early in their careers. They start trying to source out of boot camps. And, and this this is fantastic, and we do want to create opportunities for these folks coming from different backgrounds, coming from not necessarily from a CS um, degree program or something. But one of the the downsides, as you talk to um, women or or kind of black folks in these companies that are starting to try to diversify through these like early career um, funnels, is that they often feel like this reflects negatively on them, where that people um, they see so many women from boot camps hired at their company that then they as a woman feel like they are judged as a boot camp graduate as opposed to a staff engineer or as opposed to like a, a senior engineer who's having just just as much of an impact as anyone else in the company or maybe a larger impact and it feels like it has often devalues their their work and so this is this interesting question where um, if we try to diversify through um, a early career pipeline. Um, and we cause this damage to folks already in the industry, um, what do we need to be doing instead? And one of the things that I came on to is like, we really need to make sure that we have role models that folks coming in can look up to and see themselves in. And so I think one of the most important things that I hope this book can contribute to in some small way, and is one of the, the ways that I thought about um, finding the people I really wanted to go learn from as I did the interviews that kind of power this book, is everyone coming into the industry should be able to find a role model that um, resonates with who, who they want to be when, when, when they, they grow up in their careers. Um, so, so that was a really important idea to, to me personally. I think for, for me um, around role models, it's an interesting question. I think for, for most of my career, I've actually been a manager and, and, and I'm, I'm a CTO now, but what is a CTO is sort of an interesting question, but, but primarily like my impact to the business is around, um, you know, collaboration, working cross-functionally, understanding how technology can empower the business and, and, and managerial and like process and so on. Like, I, I think there, there are CTOs who will tell you that they are um, the technical visionary behind a company, and and I certainly wish that were were true. But but it's like certainly not 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 honestly the impact I have. Like we have so many talented engineers um, that that are really driving the technical direction and vision of of Calm, um, and, and same for like Stripe or, or or Uber or anywhere I've worked. That the senior technical leadership um, has never been the people actually driving the the technical vision. Um, Really, it's always been these engineers um, instead who've been driving it. So personally, like I, I think um, th there's a lot of people I, I learned from, and I, I think y there's um, a Laura Hogan post, which is like the manager, the Voltron or the Voltron manager. I forget exactly the name of it, but I think for for kind of role models as well, you have to look up at different people in different segments of your life. Um, in my interview with Michelle Boo, she called this like the Frankenstein uh, manager. Or, um, and I think it's, it's sort of the same where you have to kind of find people who you are really impressed with in different dimensions. 
And so I think of someone like a Julia Evans, who is like such a prolific creator of like phenomenal content. And I'm a really prolific creator, but like most of what I make is like not very good. Where if you look at like what Julia Evans is doing is she's making a huge quantity of content, but it's really good. It's consistently good. And if you talk with her like about her process, she actually like tests her content. She has like a small idea and she'll test it on Twitter and get like, see how it resonates. She actually has like a really methodical approach to like making sure her content works to educate folks. Um, not just this kind of like author who arrogantly wants to get their ideas out in the world and kind of um, feel important. Like her, her, her number one goal is like, does it actually help people learn? And so I've learned a lot, um, got to work with her and was that was super inspiring, but also just like kind of um, watching her, her process and getting to learn a little bit from her there has been, been super impactful. You know, re recently, as I've been working on the staff and stuff, someone who I've been just deeply um, impressed with and inspired by is Tanya Riley, she, you know, out of Squarespace, previously of Google. Um, just like she, she wrote the, the kind of uh, glue work. Being glue? Yeah, there, there we go. Thank you. But yeah, Tanya Riley and the Being Glue post is or and talk is, is phenomenal. Um, in fact, like a lot of the folks at Squarespace, I think are impressive. Like Dan Na has um, a great um, like working through friction post there. And we're just inspired by kind of these pieces of content that people create and, and kind of learning from them because they take like years of learning and can they, they turn into something people can learn from. And so to me, that that's been like deeply, deeply inspirational. Um, but but there, there's there are tons of folks that, that I've been really impressed with um, throughout the industry. Um, like Julia um, Grace is someone I've been really impressed with um, previously of, of Slack, now, now now of Apple. And you know when I was thinking about leaving Stripe and what to do next, I got to um, talk that through with her and she had some really great advice that I think that the best piece that she shared with me was just this idea of um, don't play team sports alone, you'll lose. I think we're often... Um, kind of brought up to think of ourselves as being graded individually and this is kind of like a, a core lesson of school is like you will do your work and you'll be graded as an individual and there's like a, a system that will grade us or evaluate us fairly but like when we think about promotions and this is like a, a core lesson of staff eng is that you don't get promoted exclusively on your work like maybe as a senior engineer can kind of squeak to that level through only your work as opposed to your impact on the team and the perception of your work but like at the staff level, it's a leadership role. And so you, you really have to figure out um, how to work with a team, both in terms of your impact, but also how your impact is perceived. And you can often be working on work that you know is hugely important, but the company doesn't value and just not be able to get that work recognized. And so um, her, her, Julia's advice um, was, was really impactful for me. So I think you have to find different people for different segments and kind of learn from them. There's just um, dozens and dozens of people who I've gotten to learn from over the past, even just the past couple of years. I love that. I think what you said before really resonates with me because I've been on both sides of one. When I started out, I was hired as the boot camper right out of, you know, boot camp. And then, you know, more recently in my career, I've been also in situations where I've been the more experienced engineer and the company is full of boot camp grads. And I was the only senior engineer at several companies. So that, that really resonated with me. So I want to ask, like, what's your advice for someone kind of starting out to find someone to look up to? There's kind of um, role models, and then there are kind of mentors, and then there's kind of um, sponsors, right? And, you know, of course, like Laura Hogan is like the, the canonical author on sponsorship. She has just like a huge amount of like awesome stuff out there. Um, and I think it sort of depends a little bit on what you're looking for. Like if you're actually trying to get 
I think there, there's a hard question you have to ask yourself, in particular when you're trying to get to the, the staff level, but really for any promotion, which is like, is do I need to develop myself to get this promotion? Like, am I honestly operating at that level? Or um, is the company not kind of evaluating my work in a fair or consistent fashion? I think it's like very challenging to answer that question, particularly when you kind of have people on this continuum from kind of imposter syndrome to um, very confident in, in, the, in the quality of their work. And I've worked with people who have been kind of all places on this spectrum. So I think like when you think about whether you're actually operating at that level, I think finding mentors who are able to give you honest feedback and able who know you enough. I think one of the challenges mentors is there's some mentors who you can write like a two sentence email to and they'll give you like a really great experienced answer. And you're like, this is helpful. Um, and but they don't necessarily like really understand you that well. It's more they just have this like wealth of knowledge that they can kind of like pattern match onto. And there's some mentors who like actually like have been following you long enough that when they give you advice, it like relates to you personally or in your context, as opposed to just like a, a general kind of problem area they've seen frequently. And so finding the latter, I think, is a little bit harder. And it depends a lot on um, on just personality fit where, you know, basically anyone can email me like a two sentence question and I, I will respond um, or if you but there's not as nearly as many people who I'm going to invest you know, four hours a, a quarter into kind of managing the relationship with um, it, it, it just don't don't have as much time to do it. And so finding that that second bucket, I think, is really important and, and usually ends up being someone you've worked with before. Uh, and that helps answers this. Um, am I actually at the level that I want to be for, for, for role models? Like, I, I don't think they really need to be at your company. It, it is helpful, though, where I think this helps you know that it is possible for someone with your strengths or with your um, background to actually reach those more senior levels. And, and I think, think that's like a really important proof point. And that's why, again, I think for companies who want to create a more diverse engineering organization, um, you really do have to think about hiring these like lighthouse hires um, or these kind of role model hires who can actually prove that these folks can be successful in your company. Um, and, and you have to retain them. It's, it's, it's obviously like hiring them is, is like step one. Um, re retention is the, the real kind of metric to, to evaluate your success on here. Um, and, and like, I guess, like time at level, like how long do, do folks um, take to get promoted within your, within your, your systems, right? So, I, but I think looking externally is, is really powerful as well. There, there are so many folks on Twitter. There's so many folks who are writing. Um, I, I hope that um, looking at the Staff Eng blog, you can find some folks who are, are really inspiring role models. I think just, I, I honestly think everyone I've interviewed is super inspiring, but just depending on kind of the, the, the sort of work you're doing, there's different folks. Doretti's um, interview is is phenomenal, and I learned a ton from that, um, from her her time at Mailchimp. Casa also from Mailchimp, um, amazing amazing interview with with him, and got to do a panel with him recently as well. M Michelle Boo, who I got to work with at Stripe, and talking about her experience going from a college graduate to um, being um, the the tech lead for probably the most important work that Stripe is doing. Like her her story is super inspirational as well. So I think these are these are all I, I hope folks that that people can learn from. Um, but but you know a lot of the best people that you'll ever work with like aren't aren't writing online. They're they're not they're not visible. I think it's 
there's like a celebrity of kind of content creation because basically content creation is like 50% marketing, maybe more than 50% marketing, <laughs> um, which I think people don't like to just like, I started a blog and, and no one's coming. You're like, yeah, no, no, no one will ever come. Um, you have to like get people. Um, I, I got this amazing piece of advice from the, um, the head of people at Stripe when I was um, about to publish um, an elegant puzzle. And what she, she told me, um, was like books aren't bought they're sold where you have to like go like go into like people and like hey i'll do a talk at your company um if you buy you know 50 of my books or, or something like that and i i i wasn't as like militant or, or as deliberate as a lot of folks are but i think it's a great advice for anyone who's trying to write on the internet right it's like your content is sold it's like pe people aren't like waiting to like find your blog post like no one no one really cares about your blog post um Robert, Robert Kiyosaki has this uh, really interesting quote. When I was writing my book, I, that really influenced me, actually. Uh, so he says they, they, they're called best-selling authors, not best-writing authors. Like, no one actually cares about how much <laughs> you write. Like, can you sell your book? And obviously, he's, he's, uh, he's well-known for that. But uh, it, it definitely got me to think a little bit more about the marketing side, even though, like, you know, I'm professionally biased towards marketing. But I think a lot of developers bias towards, you know, build it and they will come. Yeah, and I, I think there's this, like, long-standing belief that marketing is fake or marketing is cheap or scummy or scammy and I think it's um it's a really self-limiting belief and I think again like one of the thing one of the chapters of the staff engine book is about being noticeable and I do think if you want to go far in your career both like publicly on like social social or whatever but also just privately in your company if you aren't visible like your work won't be valued I completely agree with that I've worked with some amazing engineers and they were just the smartest engineers um, on the planet that I've ever met and I thought they were just incredible but the problem is that they weren't visible at the company so no one ever knew how good they were and they never kind of advocated for themselves, so they never got the big promotions, and they're kind of still in the same spot. But, you know, the people that weren't as good at engineers, sometimes they advocated for themselves, and then they got the promotion. I think there's, like, this idea of career management, which is, like, so, so important. And I think when people start out, most of them don't manage their careers at all, and that doesn't work. I think most companies don't want you to manage your career, right? Because they, they don't really want you to progress you move when we tell you to move. You move when we think you're ready, you know, that kind of... Yeah, it's the, it's the fungible um, developer kind of exactly. uh, Ooh, dream. Exactly. that's a good term. <laughs> the fungible developer. <laughs> that's your next book. <laughs> no, yeah, I hope, I hope not. Um, <laughs> but, but the second stage, which I think is really important, is that people go from not managing their career to blaming their manager for not managing their career for them better. And they're like, my manager isn't giving me the right projects. My manager isn't pending enough time. My manager is not giving me enough feedback. And this is a really self-limiting belief as well, where you can't, it's, it obviously doesn't work to not do nothing directly or intentionally where you like aren't managing it. But just like blaming your manager is like such a counterproductive way to go about it. Like your, your manager, you know, may, may not be doing a good job of it. And you can like rightfully be like frustrated or, or hold them to a standard. But like you personally have to be managing your own career. And this is like one of the core ideas that I think uh, I have this chapter on promotion packets, why you should be writing your own promotion packet kind of on an ongoing basis. Um, and this is similar to the idea of a career narrative. Um, Julia Evans also has a great post about brag documents. Um, and so I think this to me is like maybe the most important idea I'd give just folks in their career is that you can't not manage your career 
You can't just blame your manager for not managing your career for you better because managers change. And if you just totally depend on your manager, you'll have this amazing manager who will leave to get another opportunity. And then you're, you're, you reset like a year or longer. And you have to be deliberate about that. And if you aren't, you can blame everyone you want to, but you won't actually have kind of the, the impact you want on your own career. I have a version of this that you can call it like a brag channel. So everyone has some sort of workplace chat, like Slack or whatever. And you can open a, a Slack with just yourself in it or and, and, or maybe your manager and just post your accomplishments uh, and people paying compliments to you in that Slack. It takes very little effort to just copy and paste. But then you can go over every month or so and just sort of garbage collect into like a nice document. But you at least have the data, the raw images and the numbers and the links and stuff like that. Uh, it's, it's a really good hack. I started it in Netlify and it's... Uh, I mean, it's, it's still handy now. I've got a couple of follow-ups on, on the archetypes. I think two of the lesser known ones are architect and solver. I think you're very focused on this idea of separating leadership from management. I think architect is one of those things where people have this misconception of the architect draws something on a piece of paper and then hands it off to the, build, the construction builder. And you're saying that's wrong. My, my real question is, how do you lead without authority, right? Like, uh, I've been in a position before where, like, you, you, you have a strong vision of where things should go, but you don't have formal authority. And that's exactly where these senior IC types are. So as I talk to folks, kind of the architect role, um, and there's a couple of them. Um, I think Sylvia Botras was, was one at Twilio and then um, Kate Katie as well at Etsy. I think the, the number one thing they talk about doing is they, they spend a huge amount of time soaking up context. And so they, they just, they're, they're talking to folks that are understanding people's like problems internally. They're understanding the, 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 the rough edges where the current platforms aren't working. And, and for both of them, they're in a certain type of platform role. Like Katie is doing like front-end platform work. Um, Sylvia doing kind of database um, kind of platform work. But places where you have like a ton of internal customers and just understanding like where are the use cases not working as well um, as, as you'd hope they would. So the, the first thing they do is like the architect role as it's designed is basically about like reducing communication and coordination costs, right? And so the old style of architect is like, we're gonna reduce coordination costs by having only like one, one directional communication where I just like tell you, tell you stuff and then um, each of you and your little segments won't have to communicate with the other segments because I will have cleaned the interfaces for you already. And it's a, it's a beautiful dream, but I think what we've learned as we've moved from like Waterfall to Agile and, and kind of into this like continuous integration deployment is that we rarely understand the problems we're solving um, when, we, when we design a solution, right? So we, we almost never have the right problem, let alone the right solution when we start working on something. And so um, one directional communication just doesn't work. And so how do we, how do we adapt an architect role to, to still reduce communication and coordination overhead in a world where we're constantly wrong about the problems we're trying to solve. And so you have to get the feedback coming back. And that's where um, you see this like constant time looking at help channels and Slack to understand where people are running into problems, like doing one-on-ones to like, gather the, the context. Um, and some architects spend time implementing to make, maintain kind of the, the, the context as well. And some, some don't and rely more on just the communication and relationships they've built, both, both styles work. Um, but I think the number one thing is like these architects are powerful by virtue of being aligned with their users who are the other engineers. Um, they're not powerful by virtue of being um, organizationally uh, powerful. Whereas like man managers um, 
to a lesser extent have to remain aligned with their teams. Like you've seen teams that have like effectively revolted with their managers, but but managers can remain kind of some semi-effective much longer when they're misaligned with their their teams or organizations, often to everyone's detriment than an architect can, who who really does have to work through influence. And so to, to me, um, it's a little bit like a product manager role where product managers rarely can just tell you, you you must do or you must do that or sometimes you can but then like the team doesn't really align if they don't believe in it and so a lot of great product managers spend a lot of their time just like explaining what's important explaining why this is important explaining how this connects to the to the mission and to the user and just like adding context until that the teams believe and so i think architects are are very very much in, in the same vein I spent a year as a PM and one of my favorite podcasts back then was called All of the Responsibility and None of the Authority. And it's very much, you earn it by having all the context. People respect that when, you, when you've done the work. Then there com- it comes to be the solver. And I just realized something. I feel like solvers and architects are kind of the polar opposites. Like if you don't have a good architecture, then you then you have fires all over the place. Then you come, then you have the solvers. And I think there's this uh, meme going around where like you kind of get rewarded more for putting out fires than preventing them in the first place. Do you feel like there's some sort of perverse incentive here for, for solvers? You know, if you keep solvers around, you're over-reliant on solvers and you're not really facing problems, you know, the, the core problems. As extremes, there's kind of like a world, a mindset, which is very systems thinking oriented, where it's like, we're going to have like these systems, we're going to think very deliberately, we're, we're going to build intentionally, we're going to plan ahead, or we're going to look at like the capacity we need a year from now and design for that, not just solve the problem we have like ur- urgently. And then there's this other other one, which is like, really just like, let's get it done, let's ship it. We won't understand the problem a year from now anyway. So trying to solve it is like wrongheaded. We just need to get it out. And so I, I think architects can't function successfully in the second type of company like architects depend essentially on having context and making judgment calls about the future using that context mm. um, but you have to have a company that can actually commit to a plan and and hold to it to, to some extent and, and no company commits indefinitely to every plan if you get new information but you, you generally have to be able to like plan and architects require planning <laughs> Um, and, and then solvers are basically companies that don't believe in planning or are incapable of planning for, for, for some reason. Um, you, you instead have folks who like pop in, um, debug the kind of the critical issue and then pop out to something else. So I, I really do think it comes down to like whether the company and the organization is, believes in and is capable of planning or not, like which of these two archetypes um, is effective. Gotcha. What is the makeup of, of your staff engineers? Like what, what percentage of, you, of your people are like team leads versus architects and stuff? Yeah, that's a great question. So at Calm, we're, we're about 50 engineers, about 160 people at the company overall. And, and so we have maybe six staff engineers, something something like that. We, we are effectively all all team leads right now. And that, that was like a really deliberate kind of choice. I think it's important early on that folks like build the context around what they're doing. And I think if you try to be the architect before you've actually worked in the system, you, you typically don't understand and you solve the wrong problems. So I think it's really important as for a, a smaller, younger company, a smaller, younger engineering organization um, to, to be really deep in the, the product and the business needs directly. Infrastructure is like something I love. It's like really compelling. It's intellectually interesting. But like the, the majority of the value we as engineers and engineering organizations create for the business is not in like operating or, or creating infrastructure, right? It's in, it's in creating and, and evolving and, and serving the product to our users. 
And I, I think when you go too far towards things like architecture, kind of the right-hand model, et cetera, early on, it, it, it's usually um, to, to the detriment of just continued focus on what the user needs, how we can serve them, and how we can build it um, at a high level of quality. So we've really focused on the team lead model so far. Um, I think for like the right-hand model, it's the most extreme. Typically, I don't see that show up until a company has like many hundreds of engineers. It, it's more of a um, scale-out problem where the, the technical leadership just needs help. Um, solvers, I think, like I, I'm like fundamentally a planner. Like I, I want to plan. I want us to sit down to like get our heads together, um, really think about what to do, and then do it. Um, and so we are more of a probably the architect model will show up at some point for for us, as opposed to the solver. Um, I do just fundamentally think planning is like a, an important high value thing if, if you're willing to do it. If we kind of like tag ourselves, um, Randall, you're, you're next, but uh, I think I'll, I'll tag myself as a solver. Like I, I kind of don't fundamentally believe that I can plan anything and I love parachuting in on something and, and trying to fix things. <laughs> <laughs> I like Randall, parachuting in. <laughs> kind of. I definitely lean towards I'm more interested in also jumping in and just working on stuff. I, I'm pretty interested in systems thinking. Uh, Will, uh, if, for, for those who don't know, has this whole like Python framework for systems thinking that was very theoretical. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't get it, but it, it, it produced nice charts. Um, what should senior engineers know about systems thinking? That's a great question. And so I, I wrote this um, library. It's just called Systems. It's a Python library. It's, it's not, not super good or anything. But um, if you do systems thinking, and the introduction to systems thinking that I would recommend to everyone is um, Thinking in Systems by Donella Meadows, um, who uh, one of the founders of the field at MIT, and just like phenomenal book, really approachable, really a life-changing book for, for, for me. Um, ironically, it's also a book that I walked into Booksmith on Haight Street in San Francisco like four or five years ago, and it's like actually in stock. It's like, ah, uh, it's like the systems thinking book in, in, in Haight Street and like Booksmith, which is, is not like, um, does not have many technical books or anything, in it, but, but it was there. It's a beautiful cover. Um, it's a beautiful book. Uh, so that, that's where I would start. I, I, I think, you know, there's, there's a lot written out there and there's people who go really deep in it. Um, I, I do think... One of the most important things as a senior or a staff engineer is having the systems thinking toolkit and this um, solver toolkit of just diving in and fixing it and being able to think in both ways. I think people who are only able to think very abstractly in systems or only able to dive in and like work through the nitty gritty really get stuck because some problems just aren't appropriate for one or the other. And if you try to map, if you only have one, you will you will really screw up at some point. Um, and so I think, for example, um, one of the things I've seen a few times in my career is like incident programs that get really focused on compliance to the process as opposed to focused on finishing um, remediations that would increase stability long term. And that's where I think systems thinking gone too far gets deeply abstract and can like lose the lose the, the point. Um, just as like when you only firefight, you can often just like grind yourself um, to, to a nub and not really accomplish that much in the long term. So I think in this model, it's something like, uh, if you design the system to be so rigid, that's compliance, right? And then if you design, if you allow for a little bit more human, um, I guess, involvement, agency, whatever you call it, uh, and that's more remediation, would that be right? Yeah, I, I wouldn't use exactly those words, but I think you're, you're, I totally agree with kind of the direction you're going where um, in the incident kind of um, management model, like basically you have incidents and there's like incident response 
and then you have like an incident review where you talk about kind of the incidents and then you have like incident management where you actually like catalog tag and try to learn from these categories of incidents and then from each individual incident but also from the incident management like the categorization um there's like remediations and i think when you go too far in systems thinking you can often focus um purely on the stages like how quickly are we getting from this stage to that stage how many um incidents are we um, remediating and how long did it take us to remediate them and it gets like very um, compliance oriented to, to your point um, where and like the, the fundamental challenge is like how do you actually measure the quality of remediations which is like su super abstract because you basically have to project the number of future incidents you would have had and then look at the delta based on the remediation of how many you've eliminated which which is which is hard it's like measuring quality is is, is a real um one of my long-standing projects is to accumulate every form of engineering productivity metric and to rank them and to also establish baselines for what what 50 percentile is, what 25th and 75 percentile is. Just give, give people an idea because I feel like everyone tries to do it, but then nobody shares that data. So we're, we just have a super limited sample set. And that's no way to do science. <laughs> well, accelerate. I mean, like Nicole Forsgren, um, Gene Kim, and um, Allspa, like they're the only people who have like real data on it. But one thing I do think is interesting is that if you read Accelerate, there's these four core metrics. I think companies are struggling to instrument those metrics, like, and they're they really aren't sure how to instrument them correctly. And so I, I do think there's like a real space for both people to be like writing, but also. Um, companies to like cr create the tools or to adapt the existing tools to, to do this properly. And I think you see a lot of um, developer productivity startups that exist right now, but very few of them are actually measuring um, the things that there is now research backing. A lot of them are these vanity metrics. And so I'm excited to see them get a little bit closer to some of the, the research as, as they go. That's something I, I, I definitely think about as well, like working in developer tools. Um, you know, one, one of the things, you know, I guess Randall and I are more in the JavaScript eco ecosystym. The productivity of TypeScript is contested, right? Like, are you just making engineers happier because they get to mess around with type systems and call themselves, you know, like they're using a type language? Or, like, is, is it actually measurable? Um, I think I think a, a fair amount of the ecosystem is, is pro-TypeScript, but then there are very vocal anti-TypeScript people, especially uh, even where I work. There's no, there's no data. I, I can't, I don't know that any of the Accelerate you know the four metrics uh, i don't know if that would that would actually support that um so we kind of have to make up like yeah it, it might reduce runtime bugs by like five percent or <laughs> 15 well, I, I don't know i think i think let's actually let's actually like talk about this right um so the the four metrics from accelerate are um the kind of defect rate like how often do you have to revert deploys to production it's the time from basically merge to being deployed um, it's the size of changes, like how many different commits or PRs are, are deployed in one thing, like batch size, um, essentially. And it's uh, it's something else. I forget the fourth one. Um, but but I think I think you can um, I think you can actually tie these back in. So defect rate. Um, one of the theories of TypeScript is that, or, or or typing in general, right, is that you should actually reduce the categories of, of runtime errors. So you should be able to measure this um, in principle, and and it should prove out that you know certain types of like unexpected like nulls or, or whatever just sh shouldn't happen anymore like categorically shouldn't shouldn't be possible to, to happen two in terms of time for merge through deploy i think in sufficiently large code bases you should be able to argue anyway that you can make changes faster which is unfortunately not captured in the merge to deploy right um and 
in theory, you can use like if there's enough typing data, you can do selective test execution to reduce the the number of tests you have to run because you can understand the the bounds of the impact a little bit better, which could reduce test runtime. In practice, I, I don't I don't actually think that is super super real. And at Stripe, we wanted to do this, but what we ended up doing, which was uh, was a technique of basically analyzing the failure rates of a given file to which tests failed. And then we were able to like probabilistically determine which tests to run. Um, and then it was only in the final run that we ran all the tests. And this this isn't a technique that required typing at, at all, but we, we thought we, we might be able to use typing to our advantage at some point, and, and, and perhaps at some point we will. Um, so I, I do think you could justify it, I guess, is like my, my perspective, but I don't think it would be as like clear cut as perhaps you'd want it to be. It's a sore topic, so <laughs> I definitely do, do try to think about it where, where I can. You know, I think you have a post on career advice, and uh, you started off with always wear sunscreen, so that that's a very good that's a very good one. Some acknowledgement of irony there. Um, I think it ends with, with this interesting idea that uh, people, not jobs, last forever. I think I've started to feel a little bit of that. Like the people that I work with will last me longer than any particular job, or the people that I meet uh, externally. I was just wondering, is there like a personal story that that came out of that that really kind of illustrates the the importance of people over jobs? Even yesterday, I was talking to someone who who I worked with previously. It was asking advice about. Um, transferring or not transferring roles in the company that they're at and you know my, my advice was like think about um, which the teams you'd work with like the the, the the highest density of people you want to be working with and, and go there because I do think um, long term it's like working with these like really great people who motivate you and who are pushing you I think is going to change your, your career more than, than, than anything else in terms of kind of personally like I, I think about um, like my first role in, in tech was um, working at Yahoo and I was like a, a contractor working from the East Coast for a team in Sunnyvale hired basically to build like their front-end prototypes for companies trying to integrate with this product called Yahoo boss that wasn't a job that was like super well structured in, in certain ways. I, I think the team like Yahoo was going through layoffs at the time. It was like generally a company that was struggling a little bit. But a couple of the folks I got to work with there um, were like really phenomenal. And, and one of them, um, Dash, introduced me to the, the next job I took um, at Dig. And, and Dig also was a company that was going through some 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 pretty challenging times. I think the the, the day that I started, basically our CEO had just been um, let go. And then it kind of goes into this like dig before kind of story, which, which I've written about it and spoken about, you know, th- thank you for um, the, the suggestion um, the years ago. But, you know, the people I dig, like I still keep in touch with. And although the company itself did, did not succeed, a lot of the folks there have been like incredibly successful. And a lot of the technology that Dig, I'm going to say innovated on, although what, what that word means, I think, is like a little bit abstract at times, um, went on and was really influential at, at other companies. Um, like Second Life used some of the technology that, that Dig created. Um, Uber used some of the technology that, that Dig created. And Second Life is not really popular, like top of mind company anymore, but it was like really innovative and, and kind of thoughtful about what they were doing at the time. And Uber is, you know, like a, a complicated company in its own right. But has done, I think, from a technology perspective, some 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 really interesting things as well. And so, I, I really think your network just, as you invest into it, becomes this really amazing resource. When I approach problems now, I, I typically start by consulting the network to figure out like who are the five people who know the most about this problem, and just like talking to them a little bit. So, so really, it's just like consistently been the the case for me everywhere I've gone. The people have been really the the powerful part. And there's the idea of like people like leave managers, not jobs, and I think people like follow managers, not jobs. Sometimes you'll definitely see managers who leave and people who 
um, move pretty quickly uh, after them. And in some ways, that's an anti-pattern in the sense that I, I think it, it means the managers have not created good environments for, for their teams to remain after after they themselves left. So I don't think we should celebrate this idea of like people following managers too much. I think in a lot of ways, there there's some bad signals there. Um, but but in a lot of ways, your manager and your team matters more more than the company. So I think that's just been true for me time time and time again. People like to stick together, you know, and and sometimes they already have an established relationship and they're more productive together. I I'm sorry for for going over time, Randall. <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> no, no, no. I just want to be respectful of uh, Will's time because I know we're running up short. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, it, it, you know, I think I think there's so much that we could talk about, especially with like sort of career stuff and engineering management. And now you've now you've done the the IC track, and so I don't know what your third book is going to be about, but it's going to cover a different career path next time. Uh, but certainly we're we're going to try and plug the book. Uh, when is it launching? Great question. Not 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 sure. Um, I think trying to finish the trying to finish a lot of the content. I mean, the, the website's already up, and so like most of the content's there, and that's like where like, people can come read the interviews, read some of the guides. I'm still trying to think through exactly the the structure and the format of it. I think I have maybe four pieces that are like actually good, and, and then like maybe twelve pieces that are still like a little bit like on, on like the border of mediocrity. So trying to figure out exactly um, the details of it still. Well, I'm sure it'll be amazing when it comes out. And yeah, I, I think the interviews that you've done already are super helpful and they've they've given a voice to people who may not normally have spoken and it, you've made that made it easy to find. So uh, thank you for that and thank you for spending some time with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It's been, it's been a real pleasure to chat with both of you.